I'm Tash McGill, and this is Faith in the Time of Corona with Newstalk ZB. I wanted to speak with a journalist who could reflect on what it means to be on the front lines, so to speak, telling stories about faith in our society day after day. Uh, As Jonathan Merritt effectively said, journalists are people too, and therefore bring their own stories and experience to the way they engage with people. I spoke with Julie Zausma, a religion reporter at The Washington Post, about her experiences and how she sees her role as a journalist, in particular at these times. Julie is based in Washington, D.C., where at the time of our interview, there were close to 1,500 cases of COVID-19. At times, as we were speaking, there were sirens passing by, an increasingly common sound as the number of cases grows. I asked her about her role at The Washington Post. I've been at The Washington Post for a little over six years, and for the past four years, I've been covering religion. Was there something in particular about uh, the religious reporting aspect that drew you into it or did it happen by happenstance? Some of both. It was a subject that has always been very interesting to me, um, dating back many years before I covered it. Um, But my chance to cover religion as a reporter, I basically just got lucky and one of our two religion reporters went on maternity leave and I came in to cover for her maternity leave for six months and my six months has turned into four years and counting. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the the role of religion reporting from your perspective. We've been speaking with some contributing writers for the New York Times and the Atlantic, and you know a, a number of different um, a number of different perspectives. But I'd love to know for you what did it what did it mean, and what was the the bread and butter of um, of your job and your your task as you saw it pre COVID nineteen. I don't know that my basic job has changed that much except for how I go about doing it um, in terms of talking to people in person. My job, I've always seen it as a way of explaining people to each other. If I can make your Baptist neighbors and your Catholic neighbors and your Muslim neighbors understand each other that much more and understand how religion informs so much of our decision-making in what we eat and who we associate with and how we vote. Religion shapes so much of those choices. And if I can help people understand each other's choices, that's my goal. Mm. So so now in the age of COVID-19, you talked a little bit about the how. and talk to me a little bit about about that. How is that how is that that day to day experience of reporting and and finding stories changed for you? I'm used to going out in the world with a notebook and talking to people in person and being at church services, being in spaces of worship, and that has mostly not been happening for the past several weeks. I did go out on a story today, and it was the first time in. I think three weeks or so. Um, And some of the reporting I've been doing, it's all been by phone. And it's been the kind of very intimate conversations that I think I would have used to assume you had to be there in person to do. I wrote a story about one family's Passover Seder. And that's the kind of story I would have thought I needed to be standing there in their kitchen to get to know them, to really tell this very up close and personal story. And I I can't believe how after a whole bunch of phone calls and one Zoom call and some emails and sending some pictures, I really feel like I know this family. I feel like I've been going to their Seder for years. Um, You really can do that kind of intimate reporting, though I will be 
very, very relieved when I can go back to normal and actually be there again. What do you think that says about uh, the human ability to connect no matter what the circumstances are? I think it's a lot about asking the right questions um, and that as reporters we get very accustomed to what we need to know and sometimes in person or by phone you find yourself asking a weird question and thinking I know this sounds really weird but trust me it's important and I know why and I can explain to you where this is going to go in the story and here's why I'm asking this weird thing. Um, Today I was reporting in person and there were some machines that I was being told about as I was standing there and they were the folks who using the machines were explaining to me how they work and telling me all this great science. And I said, so would you say that's, that's a little smaller than a microwave? <laughs> like I was trying to figure out how to put it in words that my readers would understand. Um, and I think when you get used to asking those questions, maybe they're going to be a little bit different over the phone. Maybe you're going to have to say, describe that to me. What are you looking at right now? Where are you standing right now? When did you first think of that? But you know what questions to ask. Mm. Uh, so talking a little bit about, you know, the kind of stories that you're now telling, um, obviously, you know, the collective public grief is rising as this kind of global pandemic stretches out. We we have both a collective human story at this point, but then also very small personal stories about the impact of this pandemic on mm-hmm. on families and couples and parents and children. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're experiencing uh, as those stories come to light and as as you are dealing in the humanity of people. Yeah, I think it's often easier to tell that really big story through one story through one person, one family, one church. Sometimes a lot of my job is looking for the one story that's going to tell the bigger story. Um, When I was looking for a church a few months ago, for example, I knew that based on statistics, I knew the circuit preacher, the old fashioned idea of one pastor riding around to multiple churches because there's not enough pastors to go around, that's come back. That was something from the frontier, and now we're doing it again. And I knew that, but I didn't want to write a story that was just data, just, hey, guess what? There's this many itinerant pastors now. I needed to find the right pastor who was going to be an example. And much of the reporting of that story, you never read. It was me calling around trying to find the exact right circuit preacher who I could follow. And I found them. It was a couple, two pastors who together have five churches in West Virginia. And then I went and spent the weekend following them around West Virginia to their five churches. I didn't see the big, broad phenomenon. I saw two people, five churches. Um, But that was the way of telling that story. And I knew once I found them that they were the right people. And, And I think it's much the same with coronavirus. So many of us are going through similar isolation, similar deprivation of various sorts, and finding people whose stories are really resonant, who are going to communicate what so many people like them are going through can be far more useful than trying to just put it in numbers. Mm. Is there a particular outcome that you are hoping for in terms of what your readers can take away from the stories that you're writing at the moment? 
I think that depends a lot on the story. Um, I frequently want people to understand something that they didn't understand before. Um, sometimes I'm trying to answer a question that people were asking me, for example, hey, is this the end of the world? Is this the apocalypse? People who really don't know very much about the apocalypse, maybe. Um, and so I asked people who are, you know, maybe they build themselves as prophets or they're Christian scholars of the end times and said, is this the end of the world? And they mostly said no. Um, though I think that's changing a little bit as this goes on. I might need to revisit that story. Um, so, so trying to answer people's questions that they have, if I can be the one to make the call and ask those questions for them and get an answer that maybe they couldn't access, that's a useful thing I can do. What are those questions that people are asking? Obviously, you know, the apocalypse and the end times, but are there other questions that, that you're seeing uh, that your audience have that that we as the common kind of people are asking? A lot about what's going to happen, and some of that can't be answered yet, but what's going to happen to churches? Are they going to have the funds to stay open or pay their rent if they're not getting money in the collection plate? What's going to happen for how we worship in the future. If we've all gotten used to going to services online, is that going to change what happens when this is all over? If bishops have said, you don't have to go to mass during this, are people going to come back to mass when it's over? I can't predict the future, but I can talk to smart people who are and hear what they say. <laughs> and what are they saying? Well, depends a lot on a lot of things. The, the financial concerns are really real. Um, the number of churches that do not have much money in the bank to keep going during a crisis like this, or who rely on donations every week and they know that those aren't going to keep coming in when people aren't coming or even when people come back and they've lost their jobs. Um, that is a top of mind concern for a lot of religious communities right now. Mm. How do you think the role of both the church but also, you know, religion and the news, um, how do you think the role of that either changes or, or does it even shape part of our response to what happens during this time? I always think everything's a religion story. Um, I'm a religion reporter and I'm looking at the world that way. I do think that this story is an everything story. There is nothing I've ever seen that touches everybody like this. There is nobody who's not affected, no matter what your job is, no matter where you live. Though I was just reading before this call that you guys in New Zealand seem to be squashing this virus better than the rest of the world. Um, but it, <laughs> a very complimentary piece that ran in the Washington Post yes. this morning. <laughs> it's affecting everybody. Um, and religion is one of those things that I think is in the background of every story. Um, every story sort of has a religion aspect if you look for it. And that background is pretty obvious here. We're hearing people talking about grief, talking about isolation, talking about community, talking about prayer. And all of these things are things that people are seeking religious community to answer these questions, even when they're apart. Hmm. Do you see one, uh, do you see, you know, a particular voice or a particular 
um, perspective being stronger or more dominant uh, than than another at this particular time. I mean, obviously, um, the United States is has this very dominant Christian heritage that's coming through, but at the same time, um, this is this is Holy Week, not just for Christians, but also the Passover celebration is happening. So that represents a whole other community. Um, where do you see those those voices coming from, and 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 their stories being being told? Well, there's a really big advantage for anybody who already knew how to live stream, um, which in the U.S. tends to be the big mega churches that already were streaming their services every week that had great technology that were really well equipped to do that. On the other hand, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in central Pennsylvania. His church has about 100 members. He didn't even have any of their email addresses before this started. He had to call everybody and get their email addresses. And he's been trying to live stream services. And it's been a real struggle for him. And he's not sure he's going to manage to get an Easter service together at all. Um, I sort of wondered when this started, if we would see more consolidation, if people would say, hey, here's a few big churches in our denomination that are really good at live streaming. How about you watch that? And I haven't seen that happening as much as I might have thought. I think people are shopping. People are realizing I don't have to tune in to my local church because I can, local doesn't mean anything anymore. I can watch a live stream from anywhere. Um, but for the most part, communities are trying to still be that community. If you're used to going to your local pastor every week, maybe it's not flashy. Maybe he's having some trouble uploading his video to YouTube but you're going to go to the person that you know. Uh, and there hasn't been as much consolidation as I thought. Mm. Uh, someone on Twitter, I think it was Annie Downs, wrote uh, just last week that that in the, in the, the wash of online content that's now being produced, that, that we have to remember that, that content is not as meaningful as connection uh, and that desire that people have to connect into, uh, into communities that they know, you know, as I think, as I think, causing some tension between that desire to participate in ritual that's now changed, you know, into an online, digital, virtual kind of connection point. But then also, you know, what does it mean to connect in community? And particularly, I think, around uh, around some of the more traditional liturgical rituals mm-hmm. that, that have typically relied on the being together. And I know that in the Catholic community, um, the idea of uh, in Catholicism and also in high Anglicanism, you know, the idea of not being able to um, to confess or to break bread, you know, in in the traditional liturgical sense has been um, has been challenging for some. Um, what does that look like from your perspective as you see people responding to this need to to change or bend or adjust ritual? Is that something that's that's emerging in your storytelling? Yes, I, that's absolutely right. That this has been in many ways harder on people who have rituals that they can't do easily from afar. Um, I was interested particularly in some of the toughest situations where clergy are ministering to the sick or ministering to someone who is Mm. dying. How do you do that right now when you can't visit a hospital? So I wrote a story about how, you know, I talked to an Episcopal pastor who did last rites over FaceTime. Um, which is something that he never, ever would have done before because the physical aspects of that ritual 
as you mentioned, are so important. The anointing with oil, the laying on of hands. He couldn't do any of that. He just could hold a phone and talk to him. And luckily there was a nurse in the hospital willing to recharge the patient's phone so the patient could participate. Um, But these things are being sort of forced upon clergy. They don't have much of a choice and they have to make do with what they have. Uh, Rituals around death and burial are getting really difficult as funeral homes are overwhelmed and don't have the time they used to, don't have the access to let people in that they used to. It's, you know, you, you do the rituals until you can't do the rituals. I wanted to pause here. The idea of ritual and liturgy is an important one, not just in religion, but for society as a whole. If you consider that anything we collectively do together at the same time over and over is like a rhythm that helps keep us in society, forms part of our fabric. And a liturgy is like a version of that, although traditionally left for worship. It's a structured rhythm and way of paying attention. To that end, if families used to gather around the radio during wartime and the television during the Vietnam War, well now, more than ever, the news cycle has become like a liturgy for the public. Our daily 1pm press briefings, led by Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield and Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, are broadcast to the public. And as we count the number of cases and the testing progress and our alert level together, we are all participating in a collective liturgy of sorts, paying attention to this ever-present breaking news. This year, we will sacrifice our Easter long weekends and trips to the batch, our Easter services, but we will still have our daily news briefing and we will continue to count the numbers together. So I think there's a challenge for us and it's where we rely on people like yourselves to actually tell the story of of exactly how catastrophic this looks in other parts of the world and, and exactly how... Um, how challenging and how much it will change society. It will change us certainly economically, in terms of our social structures. There are many things that that it will change, but it won't necessarily um, affect us as much in our collective uh, loss and grief mm-hmm. in terms of the human cost of this. Um, and and obviously you touched on it before that grief and and loss and religion go hand in hand because that is in fact you know one of the most uh, one of the most what you know the most foundational pillars is this essence of life and death questions. Um, can you tell me how you are experiencing that, um, both in your in your storytelling, in your role, uh, but also, you know, as an observer to uh, this unfolding grief? Yeah, I think a lot of people have this sense of things closing in closer and closer to them. That oh, it was something I saw in the news, and then it was something that was in the next town over, and then it was something that someone who's a friend of a friend of a friend got diagnosed with it. And then Tom Hanks, who we all feel like we know, and it, it closes in. And for some people it is in their own family eventually. Um, but so many people are living in this fear of waiting for it to strike closer and feeling like it's just getting a little closer every day. Um, and of course there are plenty of people who don't, have the time or wherewithal to think about fear and isolation because they're working nonstop in jobs that are 
far more difficult now than they used to be, or they've lost their job or they're taking care of kids all day. It, on whatever your level is, it's affecting everybody. Um, but, but the sense that you were talking about of this grief that is coming, if it's not here yet, it's on its way. And should we be thinking about now how to deal with that? I think we don't, we haven't had that reckoning yet. We have not figured out how to grieve as a society. And, and that might be a long way away. We're still dealing with the immediate crisis. Mm-hmm. And do you see a role for um, or a particular task that that for yourself as a religion reporter you can offer into that space? Um, yeah, I hope that- so. I hope to be able to see it as it's happening. It's hard. I often, you know, in my normal life, I can be in church on a Sunday. I can go places and talk to people. I hope that I'll be able whatever new forms of belief or ritual come out of this, I'll be able to witness them from afar or from up close when that is a safe thing to do. Um, That's really my hope is that I'm not missing the important stories of what's happening to people by not being there talking to people. Mm -hmm. There is that, there is that moment of wondering questioning uh will we like will we miss something that is critical to our history and also to our future because we're all shut indoors away from mm-hmm. each other <laughs> yeah. um and we're so used to having that that very visual global reference point of being able to see you know we we see our our, our multi-ethnicity on the street when we walk down the street right. but if we're not walking down the street you know do we do we see an accurate representation of the of the culture within which we're living um, those sorts of questions I think do become important for for journalism um, is there a particular story that stands out for you um, in the work that you've been doing over the last few weeks um, that 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 has particularly struck a chord with you or, or that you would that you feel is you know is really a really important story they're all important but is there one that you think yeah this is actually an, an, an important one um, that's a touchstone for where we are right now I, the one that got me personally on the most emotional level was definitely writing about the Passover Seder. Um, the family that I wrote about stands in to me for so many families right now who are all trying to figure out how do you make this holiday meaningful? How do you connect with your loved ones who you're used to seeing and can't see right now? Um, I was so moved by their story and you can read it and find out how they figured out what they were going to do to make meaning in a really unusual time. And I think that they, there are Geisler families in every Jewish community all over the world who are all figuring this out right now. And in a few days it will be Easter and it will be Ramadan and people of faith all over the world will be like this family and trying to make meaning even in, in really unusual circumstances. You can read more of Julie Zausmer's journalism at WashingtonPost.com, including her story about the Jewish family figuring out how to celebrate the Passover in the time of corona. Next, we speak with journalist and independent media commentator Russell Brown. Although not a person of faith, his perspective on the role of religion in the news may surprise. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter, at Tash McGill. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it and subscribe. This series was made with the support of New Zealand On Air as part of the Easter programming on Newstalk ZB.